Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Good. I feel like my um, enthusiastic tone is more than I meant to bring uh, today, but I'm doing fine. Yeah. I felt Good. like I meant to sound more enthusiastic than I did, so... We're averaging. It, Let's meet in yeah. the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Take a little from one and give to the other. There you yeah. go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so we're um, officially in October, which is very exciting to me. Everybody yes. knows. Everybody knows. It is my favorite month of the year. And I love the fall, and I love the seasons changing, and I just love spooky season. I love it's it fun. for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, you always have – you've always humored me um, with my love of, of Halloween and spooky things. I do. And it totally comes from like not growing up doing Halloween stuff. So as an adult, like I feel like I kind of want to participate, but I also feel a little old to participate. Not that yeah. you participate, <laughs> but I'm just kind of like I can't just dress up more than my kids do. Like that's a little odd, but I, I kind of have fun with it. So yeah. I, I'm not great with the decorations because it still scares me. I'm still scared of things like ghosts and all of that. But I do have fun kind of like picking – you know, I like to pick some stupid thing that nobody will ever – nobody's ever guessed my costume on the first try. Never, ever. Yeah, well – I go too weird. I do weird weird stuff. <laughs> I did Queen Elizabeth Yours are Holmes. Just, yeah, exactly. Yours are just very specific. So there's no way anybody could ever guess them. 
Right. I have a target audience and that target audience is me. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Halloween is for for you. Your costume is for you anyway. So there you go. Yay. All right. I'm very excited about it. Excited for you. And I'll join along. All right. We're going to get right into the episode this week. We are headed across the pond to the UK for a ghastly story that sounds more like the plot of a Hollywood production than a real life crime that actually took place. On March 22nd of 2009, a farmer named Roger Kingsley was up and at him already out in his fields by 7 o'clock in the morning, ready to commence with the daily farm chores. Roger's farm was over 500 acres and had these massive fields of crops. And with each field, sometimes there would be several days that would go in between these fields getting tended because there's just so many, right? And there's only one Roger. One Roger. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So he would go make his rounds. And as I said, it would take him maybe a few days to make his way back around to the beginning and start over again. Being a farmer sounds like such daunting work. It does. Oh, I like how you explain that, though. That's a great (laughs) word. I would have just been like, being a farmer sounds hard. And that's as far as I would have gone. (laughs) No, daunting is a great word for it. And just imagine you take a day off and you're like, oh my gosh, I've killed a quarter of my crops just not being able to get to it. Yeah. Terrible, terrible. So as you might imagine, the preferred mode of transportation on the farm was a tractor, which is what Roger was driving when he spotted something that didn't belong in his field. When Roger made his way back to the object, he realized that it was a green duffel bag that looked suspiciously placed there, which I imagine anything would look suspiciously placed in a field that you own and no one else should be on in the first place. So yeah, if you find anything out there, you're going to be like, where did this come from? Right. So this bag being there really raised Roger's interest and his suspicion. Roger opened the duffel bag and he noticed that there was an object inside the bag and it was wrapped in blue builder's plastic and it was secured with duct tape. He touched the object and he felt that it was squishy and he said that he knew that it was something untoward and he called the police for them to come and check it out. Little did Roger know, he had actually just discovered the first of several severed human remains that would be found in the surrounding cities over the next several days and weeks. Officers responding to the scene quickly realized what they were dealing with when one of them palpated around the outside of the wrapped object and felt what he determined were toes. Yeah, as it would turn out, there was a completely severed leg in the bag that had been cut from the body at the hip through the soft tissue, so the bone was still intact. The bag that contained the leg was right out in the open, as if it had been left there in a rush, and they estimated that it had been placed there sometime between March 18th and March 22nd when it was discovered. Although officers did have forensic options available for testing, they really didn't have a ton to go on unless the DNA matched something they already had in their database, which, of course, it did not. So in the very early days of investigating this mysterious leg, things were moving very, very slowly. Tests that were conducted determined that it had been less than a week since the leg was dismembered from the body, and experts believe that the victim was a white or Asian man. It wasn't until two more severed body parts were found that this became what is now known as the work of the UK Jigsaw Man. Eight days after the leg was discovered, the next body part, which was a forearm, was found 25 miles away. This arm had been very neatly cut at the elbow and the wrist through the soft tissue and not the bone, just like the leg. Two days later, a severed head was found in yet another location. 
another farmer was tending to his cattle pen when he found the head in one of his fields. The condition of his head was absolutely horrific. Not only had the head itself been removed from the body, but the soft tissues in the head were also removed from the face. The eyes, tongue, ears, nose had all been removed in what experts called an anatomical dissection. And that face that you're making while you're listening to this is the same face I'm making while I'm saying this. This is a tough one (laughs) to hear about. This is just, whoa. So this face is completely mutilated and totally unidentifiable when investigators find the head. They couldn't even, you know, take a guess on whether it was a male or a female just looking at the head the way it was. Forensic photos of the head were sent to a specialty lab for specialists to examine and hopefully determine more information about the victim. Luckily, the teeth were still intact, which meant they could take dental impressions, but again, without anything to compare them to, it's really just basic protocol to have for later, just in case. These experts determined that the head belonged to a man and that whoever had dismembered and disfigured this face was skilled in anatomical dissection. Several more days have passed, and progress was really dragging in this case, with investigators really having no direction to go in next. This has to be wild. You're just, people are just tending to their farms, and you're just finding body parts in all these random places. Can you imagine being a farmer at that time? Just, I'd be terrified to go out and get my chickens. I don't know what farmers have. (laughs) Chickens. There's cows at some point, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So there's really no recently missing persons that could have been the victim. So they just really had to keep, you know, processing what they had and hoping they would get further leads. One thing they did find out for sure, though, eventually was that the body parts had definitely come from the same victim. So they could rule out the possibility that there were multiple murders to investigate, which was my fear when I first read this. On April 7th, a little bit of progress was made. The right leg of the victim was found, and then, a few days later, a suitcase containing the torso of the victim was discovered. The torso really provided the most clues yet. There was a stab wound to the back that had punctured a lung, which allowed the medical examiner to determine that the original cause of death was a stabbing. They believe the remains belonged to a white, Asian, or mixed-heritage man between 5'6 and 5'10". Now, this isn't a lot of information, but at least this is something to go on as they slowly work their way through this horrific crime puzzle. Back at the forensic lab, a team was working hard to find other clues or links to potential leads, and one of the ideas they came up with was to closely examine the blue construction plastic and the duct tape that was used to wrap the body parts. If they could find the same consistent debris or fibers on these materials, then they could use it later to either find or prove the location where the body was dismembered and wrapped up. So you have to think really small and tiny pieces of fibers and debris when I say these words. They were looking at the tape and plastic under a microscope, looking even for just the smallest fibers, and then they would mark them with a red um, pen so that they would be able to find them again later easily. Thankfully for them, this was pretty easy when they were looking at the duct tape because it's tape. So fibers obviously are going to stick to tape as it is, and they're just kind of sealed there forever as evidence, you know, wherever the tape was, you know, if there was any transfer from where the tape was when it was used, then they could trace it back. That's the theory. This is some, like, this process to me feels like something you would see on CSI. Right. 
to get this technical and to look at this, you know, to say, oh, we found this little fiber on a tape and like we, you know, use that to solve the crime. Like that's, it just sounds really far-fetched and out there, but they were really using these kind of techniques in this case. Yeah. But the difference is on CSI, they would see the fiber and it would be green and then they'd see a guy with a green shirt and be like, obviously that's our killer. And it would wrap up and they would play that music with the guy with the red hair and the glasses when he puts it on. Who am I thinking of? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know the CSI music? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Let me go through that whole thing. I was like, am I is Zoom down or what's going on here? Um, yeah. So anyway, that's all I have to contribute. Bye. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so finally, after working at a snail's pace for really weeks, officers pleaded with the public to come forward with any leads or information on who the victim even just might possibly be. Tips began rolling in, but it was one call in particular that put the investigation back on course. The mother of a 49-year-old man was concerned because he'd been missing and the circumstances that he went missing were what she felt was a little odd. She believed that her son, Jeffrey Howe, could be the murder victim. His mom told officers that she hadn't heard from her son in about a month and she feared something terrible had happened to him. But can you imagine having to make that connection to say, oh my gosh, my son's missing. Oh my it gosh, could this be him. Yeah. In this terrible, terrible way to have to even put that together would be, oh my right. gosh, that would be the most difficult. Yeah. So Jeffrey was a pretty ordinary guy. He lived in an apartment about eight miles outside of London and he was heavily involved in the restaurant scene. He was a kitchen salesman who loved his job and he really got along with everybody that he met. Jeffrey was not in a relationship and he did not have any children, but those who worked with him and knew him as friends described him as being very likable, very warm, and very friendly. One former coworker said that Jeffrey was, quote, a lovely guy, very hardworking and with a lot of heart. They worked together at one time, but remained friends afterward and would get together to watch football and have some drinks. There really wasn't anything on the surface going on in Jeffrey's life that would indicate a motive for his murder, but officers agreed to follow up and look into it. And we're going to talk about what they found out after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Being a mom is the most rewarding job I've ever had. It's also the hardest, hands down. And while I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, some days I'm struggling. I'm burnt out, I'm impatient, and I'm just counting the minutes until bedtime. But I recently learned about the Mama Zen app, and I really think other moms would love having this app that is dedicated to the mental and emotional well-being of moms. If you're a mom that's living through 2021, let Mama Zen help. Mama Zen was designed in part to help you deal with your kids' difficult behavior with more love and patience, which we could all use more of. Mama Zen was created by a real mom who felt like a lot of us do, which is like we're just barely keeping it together. And being a busy mom, she made it so easy to use. You simply download the app, answer a few questions on how you're feeling and what you're struggling with, and boom, you have a personalized program that fits your unique motherhood journey. You simply pop in a headphone and listen to the Mind Power sessions, which are just 2 to 18 minutes, and there are even emergency sessions you can use when you feel like you might lose your cool. I knew Mama Zen was legit as soon as I opened the app and saw the first Mind Power session was called Reduce Mom's Guilt. I am a 12-year sufferer of mom's guilt, and I know a lot of you feel the same way. 
There are so many other sessions I can't wait to dive into, but seeing titles like Be More Present With My Child and My Toddler Just Won't Stop Talking makes me wish that Mama Zim was around when my kids were smaller, although there are so many Mind Power sessions I can use right now. And listening to the Mind Power session on mom guilt and knowing other moms struggle with the same thing immediately gives me a sense of relief. Motherhood can feel so lonely and Mama Zen is a great way to help recenter and refocus on the things that really matter. I really want you to try Mama Zen and see for yourself how much better you can feel as a mom. Go to your app store or Google Play and download Mama Zen today. That's M-A-M-A-Z-E-N. Right now you can use promo code MOMS. That code will unlock your free trial so you can try Mama Zen for yourself. Mama, your mental and emotional well-being is the most important thing for you, your kids, and your family. Don't postpone it any longer. Every night before bed, I take out my Latin lessons and conjugate verbs before sleep. Just kidding. The truth is, at bedtime, you're more likely to find me eating snacks, listening to a podcast, while playing a quick round of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a perfect way for me to unwind after a long day of kids, work, or whatever life decides to hit me with that day all while still using my brain in a way that leaves me feeling refreshingly challenged. While there are other matching puzzle games, there's only one Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the matching puzzle game that makes you want to come back again and again, which actually isn't a problem because Best Fiends has thousands of fun and exciting puzzles to solve, which means there's always more. We've been playing Best Fiends for around two years now, and it's still part of my daily routine. You can find me playing a quick round before bed, while I'm waiting in line for a Diet Coke, or outside waiting for the dog to do what dogs do in my yard. I'm on level 1,993, and while I've played other Match 3 games before, they are nothing compared to Best Fiends. I love earning keys in each round that allow me to earn new fiends like my favorite, Lapoleon, that keeps the game fun and exciting and makes me wonder what they will think of next. Add me on Best Fiends with ID 2542573 so we can send each other gifts in the game. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about this man named Jeffrey Howe and how he had gone missing and his mom was alerting the police that possibly this murder that they were investigating could be connected to her son being missing for over a month at that point. Then on April 21st, 2009, two officers went to Jeffrey's address and knocked on the door. To their surprise, someone other than Jeffrey answered the door. Jeffrey is nowhere to be found, even though this residence was owned by him, but there were two tenants inside the apartment when the police showed up. They were 38-year-old Stephen Marshall and his girlfriend, who was nearly half his age, 20-year-old Sarah Bush. Jeffrey and Stephen Marshall had worked together in the kitchen sales business at one point, and they became somewhat of friends. Stephen told officers that he and Sarah had been living in Jeffrey's apartment with him for a few months after they'd fallen on some hard times and Jeffrey offered them a place to stay to help them out. So while officers are looking around the apartment, they find Jeffrey's passport, which, you know, indicates to them he's obviously not left the country and so he likely hasn't gone very far. But at this point, they really don't know if this man Jeffrey is really even truly missing. So there's nothing to hold Stephen and Sarah on or even a reason to think, you know, they've committed any crime at all. It's not a crime to leave your house. If you have guests staying at your house for a while, maybe you want to leave for a while. Who knows, you know? But even without anything on these two, police really felt like there was something about them and the answers to the questions they were being asked were kind of suspicious. And the longer they were inside the apartment, the more suspicious they actually became. 
The apartment was strikingly spotless, as if there had been a recent spring cleaning day that had happened. There was a place for everything and everything in its place, which my goodness is something I would love to say about my house, but it's normally like there's a place for everything and nobody except for me knows what that place is, <laughs> clearly. <Right>. And <laughs> I agree with the police that if I do see a place like that, I immediately think something is suspicious about it because I mean, right? I, some people maybe are that neat and tidy, but I certainly am not. <laughs> Honest to goodness, my biggest fear, like anytime my son has hurt himself and like had to go to the ER for stitches or something, I just think, oh my gosh, if somebody comes here, they're going to be like, they live in squalor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what is happening? So I'm always terrified of that. So yeah, going to somebody's house unannounced and it being all nice and tidy, that's a big red flag for me. So officers start looking around the apartment and they get to this closet where they find something really alarming. They actually found a car license plate that read H8WEJ, clearly belonging to Jeffrey Howe. So of course, officers are wondering why on earth this possibly missing man's vehicle license plate was shoved into a closet that the tenants were using. So Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush really didn't have an explanation for this. At this point though, the couple was actually arrested on suspected murder. But laws in the country made it so investigators had to find enough evidence for charges within 24 hours or the couple had to be released, which, okay, in CSI, 24 hours is 23 hours too much time, but in real life, that's nothing. No, yeah, you can't get much done at all in 24 hours. Oh my gosh, have you ever just tried to make a doctor's appointment? You have to leave a voicemail, wait for them to call you. That gets a whole thing. I'm still waiting for a call. (laughs) I just felt like I had like some crazy moment there when I just said you can't get much done in 24 hours because I felt it in my soul when I said it. Right? You ever make (laughs) a list and you like look very optimistic at your list and then halfway through the day you're like, well, if I unload the dishes, (laughs) we've had a good day. Yeah, exactly. So time is really not on their side. They have no time to prepare or gather evidence against these two prior to their arrest, and they still don't know if Jeffrey Howe was even missing or dead at all. So they're really going out on a limb here to arrest these two people. Yeah, and when you think about it that way, it is kind of crazy because, like, they don't have – like we said, there's no real proof that this man is missing. It's just that his mom hasn't heard from him and – they don't really have any other indication that he's missing. Nobody else has reported him missing. It's like where, you know, we don't know where he is, right. but that doesn't mean that these people are murderers, you know, that's like a very far leap to go. So huge. You don't know if a murder has taken place. So that's right. Yeah. You hear that exactly. in the States a lot where some cases will go to trial and, and there's no body and, you know, they're assumed dead. And then sometimes they're like, well, there's no body and we have no idea if this person's even dead. So It's kind of wild they were able to hold them at all. Yeah, yeah. So the investigators returned to the apartment to take a closer look around. While everything appeared to be perfectly well-kept and tidy, a deeper look revealed that something had indeed happened in that apartment at some point. When officers started pulling up carpet and looking in hidden places, they found traces of blood evidence, and further testing conducted confirmed the presence of a large amount of blood both in the bedroom and in the apartment's bathroom. So the working theory at this point was that, yes, there was a murder in the apartment that appeared to have taken place in the bedroom and possibly a dismemberment in the bathroom. The number one priority now was to identify the dismembered remains and determine if Jeffrey Howe was in fact the victim. 
Unfortunately, investigators hit another snag when they learned that Jeffrey had been adopted. So they didn't have the option of using familial DNA to try and match the DNA from the remains, which has to be so frustrating in a case like this because ordinarily you would just be like, oh, we'll just get a sample from one of his family members. Boom, done. We can confirm this right now, you know, but it's just one thing after another kind of holding them up from being able to identify their victim. Yeah. So in the meantime, investigators still wanted to find out more about who Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush even were. We mentioned that Sarah was just 20 years old, so of course she didn't have an extensive background, but Stephen, on the other hand, he was not exactly known for being an upstanding guy. He was known around town for his playboy lifestyle. He was heavily involved in the drug scene and always spending a lot of money hiring sex workers. Other than that, Stephen's friends thought he was a decent guy who was willing to help a friend in need, but others who had dealt with Stephen in the past didn't feel the same way. Some described him as more of a bully and an aggressor who came across as very domineering and wasn't above using violence against men and women to get what he wanted. Stephen held legitimate jobs such as owning a gym, running a valet company, and working in kitchen sales, which, as we said, is how he met Jeffrey Howe. Stephen met his current girlfriend, Sarah Bush, when he hired her as an escort. Sarah grew up in England's foster care system and had a very unstable life before turning to sex work on the streets to support herself. But when she met Stephen Marshall, she had two children and she was working for an escort service when Stephen hired her. On the first night the officers brought Stephen and his girlfriend in, they questioned them in separate rooms. Stephen essentially clamped right up immediately and he refused to cooperate or speak to the police at all. With each question they directed at him, he responded, no comment. They went on and on while asking things like, do you recognize the man to be Jeffrey Howe? And are you surprised to learn that Jeffrey Howe has been murdered? Keep in mind, they still have not even positively ID'd the remains. They are just going on out on a limb, hoping to trip him up and, you know, get a confession or get something from him. It's a tactic. I don't know if it's a great one, but I mean, there's a lot of controversy on whether or not you should be allowed to lie to people in the interrogation room. and Right. Well, especially about something like saying that someone is murdered when you don't have any confirmation that that's true. Right, right, right. Yeah, and but you can see how it can be a helpful tactic in some cases, but then on the other side of things, you've got cases where people have been wrongfully convicted because they break down, you know, over lies that they're being told and confess just to make it end, you know? Right. So, you can understand why there's controversy there. So anyway, he they also asked him, you know, how do you feel knowing that your friend has been murdered? Really just anything to get to him to get him to answer something other than no comment. But with each question, he continued to answer no comment. A criminal record search on Stephen revealed that he was currently out on bail after he had assaulted a sex worker. And that wasn't his first or his only offense. He'd actually been convicted of assault, drug charges, firearms offenses, and get this, he was even arrested as a murder suspect in 1996 after a man was stabbed 12 times. However, he was never actually charged in that murder. I mean, murder, stabbing, like those are, (laughs) we've got like an MO going on here. Right. So officers really didn't get much out of Stephen during this initial questioning, but they had enough to suspect that he had something to do with something. 
So to speed things along in identifying the remains of the Jigsaw Man, which is literally what the media was calling the victim in the story, forensic experts compared CT images of the severed skull they found with dental x-rays belonging to Jeffrey Howe, and in a huge breakthrough, it was determined that they were actually a match. The dismembered victim, whose body parts had been found all across the country, was in fact Jeffrey. Stephen and his girlfriend Sarah were both charged with murder and held in jail until they could be put on trial. But now authorities had the task of building their case, finding out exactly what happened and proving it with evidence. So on May 1st, 2009, the couple appeared in court for an arraignment and would later plead not guilty to the murder. But there's still more to get into and a whole nother twist that I never saw coming after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Over the last couple of years, I've learned that nothing is more important to me than my health, which is why I've been making changes that positively affect my health and fitness. As a result of my increased activity, getting quality protein into my body throughout the day is a crucial part of my regimen. But as a busy mom, I find myself relying on protein powders to help me reach my goals. And that's why I was so excited to learn about Gainful, the personalized nutrition system that formulates protein for your body and goals. Gainful gives me a peace of mind that my protein powder contains only the finest ingredients specifically for me. Unlike other protein powders, your personalized Gainful protein powder comes to you unflavored with separate flavor boost packets, so you can pick a different flavor every day without having to buy a bunch of different flavored powders. There are eight delicious flavors, and so far, I've tried the Cafe Mocha and the Strawberry Cream, and they are amazing. I've been using my protein powder and the flavor boost to create dessert-like shakes and smoothies that even my kids are begging me to share. To get started, you just need to take the quick five-minute Gainful quiz. What I really appreciate about Gainful is that they support your whole body health and individual fitness goals, so this isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of protein. No matter your fitness goals, the answers you've given in your Gainful quiz will help match you with a personalized protein to be delivered to you as often as needed. You're even welcome to cancel or adapt your plan as needed. And thanks to Gainful's rigorous quality control process, you can be sure you're only getting clean ingredients, things you can actually pronounce, and zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners. To get $20 off your personalized protein, go to gainful.com mom. That's gainful.com mom for $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your tastes. When it's time for your special day, you want to remember the little moments, the cutting of the cake, the first dance, and which cousin hit on your bridesmaid, which is definitely a true story in my case. But to be able to enjoy these moments on your big day, you have to make it to your big day. And if you're planning your wedding on your own, there's at least a few times you'll wonder if you'll even make it down the aisle. But now, thankfully to help you, there's Zola. Whether you want a big bash or an intimate ceremony, Zola.com is the place to start. They have your back for all your wedding needs, and that's why over a million couples have planned their weddings with Zola. And Zola knows weddings can be expensive, but planning with Zola never is. All of Zola's planning tools are completely free to use, like a free wedding website where you can answer frequently asked questions. But it's also home to your gift registry, which also includes free shipping and returns. You can also get free personalized samples of your invites, so you aren't just covering your eyes and hoping for the best when you order 200 invitations. And of course, Zola also gives you free envelopes and guest addressing. If you're planning your wedding, here's my tip. Start with Zola. Go to Zola.com slash moms today and use promo code SAVE50 for 50% off your save the dates. Zola is the one place to start for your wedding day. That's Zola.com slash moms, code SAVE50. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? 
Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we have Stephen Marshall and his girlfriend Sarah Bush in court, and they have pleaded not guilty to the crime of murder in the case of Jeffrey Howe. The police have been able to positively identify the uh, remains that they have been finding, and they now know that it is Jeffrey Howe who was reported missing by his own mom. So one thing they really were focusing their attention on was trying to prove that Stephen was present during the dismemberment. They returned to the apartment yet again to continue collecting evidence that would link Stephen to the murder as well as continuing to do a deeper investigation into his past. In the room where Stephen and Sarah stayed at the apartment, several pieces of evidence were bagged and collected for laboratory inspection. Some of the items they collected were clothing, as well as samples from an air mattress where they slept. They went back to the duct tape that they had analyzed earlier in the investigation and determined that it contained fibers, and this was their time to use that evidence. Fibers collected from the apartment would be examined and compared to the fibers on the duct tape used to wrap the body parts. And no surprise, they actually did confirm a link. The fibers from the air mattress were a positive match from the fibers found on the tape, which was enough to prove that Jeffrey had been dismembered and wrapped up inside that apartment. In addition to these fibers, Melissa, you'll be happy to know, they also found several green fibers from a shirt. Yes. And they looked through Stephen's closet and found that he actually did have a green polo shirt matching those fibers. And um, that was all they needed to prove that not only was Jeffrey murdered and dismembered in the apartment, but that Stephen Marshall was present when it happened. Again, when I made that comment earlier, I definitely knew this was coming. So but I didn't mean to accidentally say that. So (laughs) we sailed over that. But yes, that was a specific detail that I already knew. So (laughs) there you guys go. 
Yeah. So through the investigation, it was determined that Jeffrey was killed on March 8th or 9th while he slept. They believe that Stephen stabbed Jeffrey in the back and left him to bleed out overnight and that he dismembered the body the following day. And as we said before, this was a very meticulous and actually well done dismemberment, if you can say that. Of course, we don't mean that as in... Um, you know, wow, great job, Stephen. You know, yeah. go get him. Nobody's we're, given we're, him a trophy at the end of this. Right, exactly. We're saying as far as medically speaking, the experts and the professionals, like medical professionals that looked at this case just were astounded by how well done, technically speaking, this dismemberment was right. on this body. But still the question on everybody's minds was why? You know, why would Stephen and his girlfriend have a reason to – brutally murder this person mutilate his body this way what would be the reason for that and a tale as old as time they really believe that the motive was probably money or financial gain it was learned that steven and sarah really wasted no time accessing jeffrey's personal funds and his assets immediately after his murder in fact the very next day Stephen actually pawned off Jeffrey's phone, and within the next several days, the couple was using Jeffrey's credit cards and bank accounts, which is like the most obvious way to get caught in the entire world. Yeah. So they're making purchases at clothing stores, restaurants, grocery stores, everything. And they are so bold that they're even writing checks to themselves from Jeffrey's account and depositing them into their own accounts. Can you just like that's just a calling card? So I guess they must have been, or at least Stephen was really banking on nobody being able to identify him, right? Because how I else would you be this brazen? So. Yeah, well, that's I feel like this is just another installment for dumb criminals or you know, whatever a segment you want to call that. But like, just yeah, why would you do this? Why would you? It just doesn't make any sense. Writing it's a check just, to yourself that's from a dead person's account like you're going to get caught immediately that's just you're not even trying yeah especially if there's okay they've never written you a check before and now all of a sudden he's writing you a check for however many pounds that's wild no that's as soon as they figure out this guy's missing but i really kind of think that that's what it was that they were just kind of banking on him not being married not having family close by and maybe nobody would notice for a long time you know right So Stephen even sold Jeffrey's car at an auction after he had swapped out the license plate with the one from his own car, which of course explains how Jeffrey's license plate ended up tucked away in a closet and not on his car where it belonged because the car was gone. It had been sold very early on right after Jeffrey had been murdered. So both Stephen and Sarah's fingerprints were actually found on the documents related to the car sale. So you know the officers have to be like, wow. We went out on a hunch, you know, we went out on this one and it really paid off for them. Yeah. And speaking of Stephen and Sarah, at some point after they were arrested, you're going to be sad about this, but the love between them soured very quickly. Their defenses really were just like pointing the finger at each other and just blamed each other for what happened. There was no love lost between these two. And this is, of course, a technique that's known as a cutthroat defense. And so by the time the trial begins in January of 2010, which is less than a year later, they're no longer lovers, but they are, I guess, scorned lovers. They didn't even look at each other in court. Like, they were just very over each other and angry at each other and blaming one another for committing this murder. So prosecutors painted a very dark, dark picture of what type of person Stephen was. 
They said, you know, he's known for his violence and his manipulation and that he was an extremely dangerous man. And then here comes a bombshell. A prosecution witness actually testified on the stand that Stephen had, in fact, murdered before. And not just murdered, but he had also dismembered. And so remember when we talked about earlier, uh, Mandy was mentioning how this was like the perfect dismemberment. Again, perfect being an expertly kind of way to say that, um, except not really because an expert would have better words than I do. <laughs> but this bit, witness is basically like, yeah, the reason he could do that is because he's dismembered several people. And so this prosecution witness, this woman, alleges that Stephen had described how long it took him to carry out these dismemberments, plural, and how much physical labor it required. He told her he would just put the body parts in plastic bags and bury them in different places. But more than just that, Stephen Marshall was actually committing these alleged other murders at the behest of the Adams family, a notorious London-based <laughs> crime family led by Terry Adams. So basically, he's a gang hitman. What? Where did this come from? <laughs> it's just out of nowhere. It came from out of nowhere. All of a sudden, he is a complete mobster. Like, yeah. Who knew? I no mean, one until no, literally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally no one. So, but this guy Terry Adams is not just a gangster, but he is a rich gangster. He actually amassed a fortune of over two hundred million pounds through racketeering schemes and a drug trafficking empire, which had been linked to twenty-five murders. So during the 80s and the 90s, the Adams family was so highly feared that lesser criminals wanted to work for them. So <laughs> can you imagine being like, oh, coming home to your husband and being like, oh, our criminal empire is just not going so well, right. but the Adams family is like doing so good and maybe like they can bring us into their fold and wouldn't that yeah. be cool? Yeah. And I was reading also because these Adams family, the members who now. were, yeah, when they were out there on the streets, you know, committing their crimes, you know, the other lesser criminals they were intimidated by them. And it's like, I guess in crime, there's a hierarchy. It makes sense, right? You have sure. your lesser criminal, your lower level criminals. They kind of stay out of the way of the bigger guys. And yeah, so the, the the little guys, they wanted to go to work for the big guys, I guess, because they felt like they would be safer. That's the only reason I can, I mean, or they just wanted to keep committing bigger crimes. I don't know. I don't know what goals criminals have Be in life. Be your own <laughs> boss, criminals. That's what yeah. we're telling you today. Be your own boss. That's the lesson from today. Just kidding. Don't listen to that. That's insane. I should have never said that. So <laughs> back to the story. Other witnesses really give these similar terrifying accounts of their dealings with Stephen and agree that he's scary and capable of something as serious as murder plural, again, dismemberment, all of that. <laughs> They're like, yeah, no, not, not surprised at all. Yeah. So the prosecution spent three weeks laying out their case, and they were presenting all the evidence and putting witnesses on the stand. And it was nearing the end of the prosecution's case, and all that was really left was to get Stephen and Sarah Bush up on the stand themselves before they could finally close their arguments. But in another very strange and very rare twist, Stephen decided at this point, three weeks into his trial, that he would like to change his plea from not guilty to guilty. By all means. <laughs> right. So this pretty much is unheard of. This doesn't really happen. Usually when someone picks their plea, especially a not guilty plea, 
they write it out until the bitter end and they have the jury decide. It's very unusual to see somebody change their plea to guilty in the middle of their own trial. So it's thought that Stephen knew he would never be able to win this his case after hearing the prosecution's case against him because they had a lot of evidence. And it doesn't help when you have people in the stand saying, yeah, he's a really terrible, scary guy. Also, right. he's told me about these other terrible things he's done. That doesn't really look good for you in this kind of a situation. So he just admitted his guilt. But what about the other alleged murders that he did for this mob family? We will get back to that. When Stephen changed his plea to guilty, it changed the course of things for Sarah Bush as well. Obviously, if he's saying, hey, I did the murder, then right. now they can't charge her with murder because he took you know, ownership of the crime. So she then pleaded guilty to assisting in dismembering the body, but not to the murder. And she also pleaded guilty to providing false information to the police. On February 1st, 2010, a judge sentenced both of them. Stephen was given a life sentence with a 36-year minimum before he would be eligible for parole. Sarah Bush was sentenced to just three years and nine months for her part. The couple never did admit to where the remaining body parts that belonged to Jeffrey Howe were located, but Sarah suggested that they could have buried his hands in a forest that was nearby. Hmm. So authorities did, however, get to learn a bit more about Stephen's past transgressions. He confessed after his trial to assisting in the disposal of four murder victims' bodies, a job which he was specifically hired to do. His quote-unquote real job at this time was working as a doorman at clubs. His method of disposal, for lack of a better word, was to dismember the bodies, wrap them in plastic, and then scatter the remains in numerous locations. He said he did this between 1995 and 1998. Now, experts believe this is true, and that's where he obtained the skill displayed in the dismemberment of Jeffrey Howe. He said that all of these victims were victims of mob hits. He also alleged that he used various tools, including knives, cleavers, and a chainsaw to carry out the dismemberments, all of which were used in Jeffrey Howe's dismemberment. It was also learned that Stephen had other crimes in his background. He was convicted of battery against his first wife in 2003, and as we mentioned before, he was suspected in a murder once that never resulted in any charges against him. So investigators were never actually able to link Stephen to these crimes, and he refused to give them any more information, possibly due to the fact that it would make him a target in prison if he talked about it. Yeah, dude, you worked for the mob. Probably not hey. in your best interest <laughs> to spill all their secrets. I wish you would, but I can understand why you didn't. So in November of 2010, Stephen actually filed an appeal in hopes of getting his sentence reduced because he's killed like 50 people and he thinks he should get a shorter right. sentence. Ugh. But a judge turned him down right off the bat and dismissed the case, requiring Stephen to serve out his life sentence. Sarah Bush served 45 months and was released a free woman. Stephen, though, won't be eligible for parole until 2046, at which time he'll be 74 years old. In the end, the best explanation for why Jeffrey Howe was killed was simply the product of greed and an unstable man. Jeffrey Howe was really kind and offered his home to Stephen when he was down on his luck, which ultimately resulted in his tragic murder. Mm. Such a terrible story. I was doing the research on this one and just looking at the picture photo they have of him. He looks like such a sweet man and just really, he really does look like a, just, you know, some people just have that look that they look very warm and caring and inviting. Yeah. He just looked like that. He looked like a really nice guy and just it's just really sad to 
to hear about somebody who's trying to do something nice for someone else and something terrible happens to them. Yeah. So they get it's, taken advantage of. It's awful. Yeah. It's kind of wild to me, though, for on for Steven's part that I wonder if this was the only murder he committed with someone that he knew since all the other ones seemed to be mob hits and he was never officially tied to them. Because doesn't it seem bizarre that he, like, left a leg – out in a field like yeah. they're gonna find it like if he's burying these other things and then this is just like willy-nilly in places it doesn't really make sense it doesn't really i thought that too that if he had done this before and got away with it why would he change what his what, what he was doing yeah, yeah exactly uh so that is something interesting and they never really were able to prove any links between any you know alleged mob victims and right. him so i guess that's also up for debate is it true is it not true yeah some experts seem to think that it's, he's telling the truth. Some people think he just made it up. But then again, right. why would he I, – I don't know. I don't know why. We always say why, but there's just no answers yeah. to why like these type of people do what they do because we cannot comprehend yeah. those kind of things. There's never going to be a satisfying answer for it. doesn't matter what their why is. It's never going right. to <laughs> make sense uh, for what they've done. Wow, really uh, – Interesting story. I've not heard of this before. And so friends in the UK, you'll have to let us know if this is one that you were familiar with. I'm assuming you were. So before we go, we have a quick little last thing before we go. Speaking of jigsaw things, I decided to look a little into the history of jigsaw puzzles because I honestly don't know anything about it. Um, and Mandy, I thought I would just ask you a couple questions um, to see what your knowledge is of jigsaw puzzles. Uh, Isn't I can that tell you thrilling? It's, it's very little. So let's see. <laughs> Truly thrilling information. When we've already gone to a country and I can't choose like fun phrases, I'm really in trouble. I don't know what else to do. So Mandy, an Englishman named John Spilsbury, who was an engraver and a map maker, he actually invented the jigsaw puzzle in what year? Was it 1667, 1767, or 1867? I'm going to say 1767. Perfect. It was in 1767. Um, do you know what the first jigsaw puzzle was a picture of? I can give you choices. Mm. Okay. Let's hear choices. Okay. A cat, a map, or the dog from the I'm fine fire meme. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I feel like it was a map, but that's like awful. Why would that be awful? I, a, I don't want to – who wants to put together a jigsaw puzzle of a map? Oh, gosh. Okay, so originally they were for – I love how I'm an expert now and I'm like, <laughs> you commoner. So obviously the map was the right answer because they were – they used it like as a learning thing. So people could use that to actually learn the map, which actually I should probably get a jigsaw puzzle – even of the, you know, Western United States, you and I have no idea where Idaho is. We've proven ourselves on Utah. <laughs> so maybe yeah. we could use a Utah or we could use a map. That might yeah. be helpful. Well, I've seen like the little, you know, Melissa and Doug toddler puzzles for children with yeah. um, Too complicated know, like the map me. of the United States or whatever it's a puzzle, I guess. Uh, but yeah, a jigsaw puzzle of the like world map. That just sounds like a nightmare and a headache to me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that on the west coast of the U.S. there's just like a bunch of squares. I'm like, well, they all look the same to me. I can't exactly. <laughs> exactly. What do you do when it, when you're in the ocean on a map? Like, gosh, that just I know. know. And keep in mind the first. I'm, puzzles, I'm angry thinking about it. <laughs> the first puzzles like didn't have a cheat sheet. Like it was just put them together and hope for the best. 
Yeah. What if but, the world doesn't look like we think it is because of jigsaw puzzles? <laughs> <laughs> Australia is like 200 miles south of Florida. We have no idea. Uh, listen, there are conspiracy theories oh, in no, Australia. No, it doesn't no. even exist. So, Oh, gosh. <laughs> no. Just move it right along. We've left the lizard people. I can't go back to this life now. <laughs> okay, Mandy, just a couple more. Um, a jigsaw puzzle was originally called dissections, trisections, or quad sections. Hold on. What? A jigsaw puzzle, the original name for it was a dissection, a trisection, or a quad section. Quad section. Actually, it was dissections. I am very glad I could choose you, scare you with those. Um, Yeah, so originally, jigsaw, it didn't become a jigsaw puzzle until it, um, a jigsaw saw was actually invented. And then that's what they used to cut it with. And then that's how it got its name. I learned so much today. (laughs) Wow. I'm blowing my mind with the things I've learned. Oh my gosh. This is the kind of thing. Yeah, you could be. I think I am. I think I just am a self-appointed expert. What were you going to say? This is the kind of thing. I was going to say, this is the kind of thing that your son could learn a lot about and probably teach you more if you wanted to know more about jigsaw puzzling. Freaking A. He probably knows all of this already. (laughs) I'll go and ask him these questions after and he'll just give me all of them. (laughs) He made a meme today. It's I don't even understand it, but it's hilarious to me that he made a meme. Um, It's my new favorite thing. Okay, Mandy, last question. With over 40,000 pieces... Memorable Disney moments is confirmed by the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest commercially made puzzle in the world, both in number of pieces and overall sizes. Don't write us and tell us, Melissa, Mandy, there's a 50,000 piece puzzle. I know. I saw it. But this was according to the Guinness Book of World (laughs) Records, and it's an official record according to GuinnessBookOfWorldRecords.com. So save that one. You save that email for yourself. Mandy, how long do you think it takes to put together this 40,000-piece memorable Disney moments puzzle? Okay. Is it a flat puzzle? Did you see a photo of it? Um, it Yeah, I did. And I saw a bunch of people very excited to be doing this. Okay. I'm going to say it takes three weeks. What, what am I supposed to do with that information? I've got it in hours. I can't do that oh, kind of math. Okay. Well – Okay, if it's in hours, I'm going to say then let's let's take it way down. Let's say it only takes I don't know, 500 hours. And Ooh, I don't know Go up, how, go up. What? 600. Up. Great job. Nailed it. Do you want me to edit this so it looks like you got it the whole time? Nailed no, it. No. 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 We no. speak the truth here. We speak the truth. <laughs> I said 500 the first time. I will take my shame. <laughs> oh, it's not shame. That was the closest maybe you've ever guessed on something. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm a way that worse was like guesser a low, than you. That was a very low key. Um, it was shade. dis and yeah, shade it was a shade. It but it was like uh, hidden as a compliment. So I don't yeah. know what that word is, but I guess shade is the right word. Um, okay, and last thing, do you know how much that would sell for? Because you can buy this. 40,000 piece oh, well, puzzle it's a to Disney do thing. It's a yeah. Disney thing, so I already can't afford it, whatever the price is. It sells for $600. What? Yeah. It's a lot of freaking pieces. Yeah, but like, what do you and do with Disney. it? I just saw a bunch of people, I'm talking Cheshire cat smiles doing this thing. And I just <laughs> said liar when I saw every last one of them. No way. No, yeah, that's what they do. So yeah, that's 25 wow. days it would take you if you worked 24 hours a day on that puzzle. And if you did, you need that $600 for something else. 
And maybe it's <laughs> caffeine. Maybe it's a new friend. I don't know what it is. But yeah, you need something else. <laughs> That's it, Mandy. All right, guys. Well, that was the episode for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.